Hello, and welcome to the Paperclip Podcast. I'm Mehir Sharma of the Observer Research Foundation, and in this podcast, we are going to take a look together at the stories that matter to India and the world. Hello, and welcome to the Paperclip Podcast. I'm Mehir Sharma of the Observer Research Foundation, and we here at Paperclip try to give you the real story behind the big headlines in your morning paper, informed by research and commentary from around the world, but particularly from my ORF colleagues. And this week, we're going to talk about the US presidential election. Yes, I know you've likely already heard a lot about, about it, about how it's turned out. Some of you might even have been following the campaign and the counting. I certainly have. And among, among the large numbers of people worldwide befuddled by the US's complex electoral system. And also, why are their district names so different from the cities that the districts contain? I mean, if basically everyone in Wayne County, Michigan, actually lives in the city of Detroit, why not just call the county Detroit? Complete madness. Anyway, that's not what I'm here to talk about this, though it could certainly fill an entire episode. We're here to talk about what the transfer of power in the US, assuming it eventually happens peacefully and smoothly, could mean for the rest of the world, and in particular for India and the Indo-Pacific. And to do that, I thought we would start with a little excursion into the past. Back to, in fact, the last time an American presidential election was this contested. I'm talking about 2000, when 512 votes, that's all, in the state of Florida, separated George W. Bush and Al Gore, and the counting was essentially stopped early by a Supreme Court judgment in favor of George W. Bush, who then became the next president. That period, the year 2000, 2001, during that election and in the first months, first year of George W. Bush's tenure, is odd to remember. It wasn't quite the enthusiastic 1990s when, you know, the USSR and the Eastern Bloc had been defeated. And there was a sense in Francis Fukuyama's famous phrase that history had ended. By 2000-2001, you understood that the new world order that was being born might be, in some ways, in some places, quite disorderly indeed. And if you read between the lines, you felt that the great question of the 2000s would be, how to deal with the People's Republic of China. In April 2001, for example, happened what many felt was a foreshadowing of what the rest of the 2000s would inevitably be about. In April 2001, a US spy plane and a People's Liberation Army Navy jet collided in midair over an area of the South China Sea that is claimed by several countries, including China. The U.S. at that point tended to enforce countries' rights to pass through it, to overfly it, what we now call free and open Indo-Pacific, freedom of navigation at that point. And that is what the U.S. plane was doing, enforcing that freedom. But the Chinese jets collided with it and brought it down. One PLAN pilot was killed, and the U.S. spy plane's crew was taken into custody by the People's Republic of China. It was a sort of tense standoff that many thought the U.S. would never again have to manage once the Cold War had ended. And yes, the standoff did end peacefully, but it felt like the pattern for the 2000s had been set. George W. Bush's major foreign policy task, you imagined, would be to figure out how to manage Beijing's ambitions 
in Asia and beyond. Of course, that's not what happened, because just a few months later, 9-11 took place. And for about a decade, the US and the world essentially forgot about the People's Republic of China, indeed about the Indo-Pacific in general, in pursuit of an unwinnable war on terror. And in the meantime, in the course of that distraction, Beijing expanded its influence, it grew its economy, while the world was distracted. On December the 13th, 2000, Al Gore conceded the presidential race to George W. Bush, a month after the election had actually taken place. But two days earlier, on December the 11th, 2000, something that was perhaps even more consequential took place. The People's Republic of China formally entered the World Trade Organization. Beijing promised to reform its economy, and in return, in December 2000, was given the keys to world trade. Two decades on, Beijing's leaders have not fulfilled their promise to turn their economy into a proper market-led one that can participate in world trade on equal terms. As a consequence of this failure to live up to its side of the bargain, it dominates global trade in a manner that few predicted in the 1990s. And that's one reason we're talking about 2000 and 2020. Because from 2000, we learn the dangers of distraction. When the global superpowers focused in the wrong direction, the real problems get built up until they are almost impossible to solve. You hear a lot today about how people across the world, some people across the world, whether they're politicians, some academics, some policymakers, and these people get criticism for, for apparently being too concerned about the PRC, and that this concern is dangerous, racist, or it's disturbing the status quo. I've always thought that this complaint is a bit misguided. The problem is not that people are concerned about the PRC's behavior. The problem is that the concern has come so late. And so we come to 2020 and what this presidential transition means. The fact is that whatever else you may say about Donald J. Trump as president, he has a legacy. All U.S. presidents have a legacy, but it's difficult to imagine Trump as being just like any other U.S. president. Still, he does have a particular positive achievement that will live on after his time in office is over. And that is he has completely rewired America's approach to the PRC. Of course, he had help. Beijing has done itself no favors by ditching diplomacy for bullying in recent years, for example. And President Xi Jinping has not even gestured in the direction of sort of progress, democratic transitions, liberalism, the way that his predecessors had. And then, of course, there's a pandemic which, like it or not, many regular people, including American voters, still, either consciously or subconsciously, blame China's leaders for, for letting escape that country. Now, Trump is the sort of man who sees bad deals everywhere, unless he has negotiated them himself. But what he has going for him in this case is that the deal that the world gave China was indeed badly structured. All of us have allowed the PRC to become the world's factory, but in return, the promised opening up of its economy and its politics has not happened. With our investment, our purchases, and our two decades of forbearance or distraction, Beijing has built up both a vast war chest and enormous global influence. And the thing is that everyone knew, even by 2016, that this had turned out to be a bad deal. But few were willing to come out and say it. Now that Trump has, 
most of the world can admit it agrees with him on this, even if not about much else. In other words, even if Trump grows, the broad direction of his China policy will remain. It may be better structured, less transactional, less confrontational, and less unilateral. But the direction will remain the same, which is good news for the Indo-Pacific and for India in particular. What gives us nightmares in this neighborhood is a Beijing unchecked by a distant or distracted Washington. Look, we know that the U.S. is turning inward, somewhat inward. We in the Indo-Pacific can't help that, though clearly we think it's a mistake. But as long as it remains at least a little engaged, as long as it understands what the imperatives are, in particular managing and shaping the PRC's rise to benefit everyone and not just Beijing, that's okay by, by us because it provides a crucial form of coordination for everybody else who has stakes in the region. In India, we sometimes worry about Democrats replacing Republicans in the White House. We got on well in this country with George W. Bush, for example, and not quite as well with Barack Obama, who kept on choosing emissaries and plenipotentiaries that set Indian diplomats' hackles up. For example, John Kerry. But on this occasion, we are less worried about the change because of who the person in the White House will be. Joe Biden was an influential American legislator for long enough that he himself carries the institutional memory, or he himself is in fact the institutional memory, of how the Indo-Pacific reached its current level of tension. There's little chance, in my opinion, that he will drop the ball in Asia. He may be unhappy with a more confrontational approach, but everything in his career suggests that he will not shy away from the China challenge as much as another Democrat, maybe a more liberal Democrat, might have. As for India and the US, well, let's turn the clock back to 2000, 2001, one last time. Remember that as George W. Bush took the White House, India was in the doghouse. The nuclear tests of 1998 had put relations on hold, and although New Delhi behaved responsibly during Cargill and Bill Clinton visited to a rapturous welcome, things by 2000, 2001, are, are really not back to normal. They're still under sanctions in many ways, and so on and so forth. In India, the story that is told is that George W. Bush broke these barriers down himself and chose to restore and indeed upgrade the Indo-US relationship through the nuclear deal. But I want to read from a letter sent by the chairman of the Foreign Relations Committee in the US Senate to President Bush. This letter was sent, well, in August 2001, late August 2001, barely a fortnight, in fact, before 9-11 happened. It's another sign of what was about to, world that was about to be born if 9-11 hadn't happened. Here's what the letter said. Today, the economic sanctions against India serve to stigmatize rather than stabilize. India will respond with reciprocal acts of goodwill in non-proliferation and in other arenas, and the United States and India have been in the process of transforming our relationship. India is becoming more and more important to the U.S. as it assumes a larger role in world affairs and as its economy expands to meet its enormous potential. That was a letter written in August 2001 from the chairman of the U.S. Senate's Foreign Relations Committee. And the letter essentially promised that if the president moved forward with India in normalizing relations, the committee chairman would help manage the fallout on the Capitol Hill. 
I mean, yes, the chairman of the Southern Foreign Relations Committee at that point was Joe Biden. Joe Biden wrote that letter. So, yes, chairman of the U.S. Senate's Foreign Relations Committee was Joe Biden. And yes, therefore, New Delhi is not too worried about this particular transition. There is an understanding in this city that maybe Joe Biden will retain that approach to India as an important partner, will retain this understanding that the relationship between the US and India is not transactional, that will allow us to continue to move forward. In this case, the shadows of 2000 are a little comforting for us in 2020. This has been Paperclip, and I'm Meher Sharma. Thank you for listening.